Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Though Late, It Is Liberty, Abolitionism in Brazil. If you're from North America or Europe, chances are that when you think of the transatlantic slave trade, what comes to mind is the cotton plantations of the southern United States. Beyond that, you're likely to think of the sugar plantations of the Caribbean islands. But in fact, the colony in the Americas with the largest number of African slaves was Brazil, with more than 3 million arriving there over the hundreds of years the slave trade was in business. The Portuguese began taking people from Africa already in the 15th century, at first mostly bringing their captives to Europe to serve as domestic slaves, but then transporting them to the so-called New World as manpower for an empire funded by agriculture. As in Haiti, sugar and later on coffee were the major crops, though in Brazil slaves also labored in mines and in cotton fields, and indeed in every sector of the economy. The Portuguese did also enslave the indigenous population, but came to prefer slaves from Africa, in part because they were more likely already to have acquired immunity to European diseases. The result, demographically speaking, was a population where black and mixed-race people were in the majority. In the 19th century, so-called free-colored greatly outnumbered those still enslaved, with the two groups together numbering about 5.8 million in 1872, about one and a half million more than the black population of the United States at the time. The result appalled observers like the notorious race theorist Joseph Otto de Gobineau, who lamented that the Brazilians were a completely mulatto population of polluted blood and spirit, with not a single Brazilian of pure blood. Brazil's racial diversity meant that people were not classified simply as white or black. One survey has counted 40 different terms to describe skin color, literal shades of meaning across a spectrum that could not be reduced to the three basic terms branco, pardo, and preto, meaning white, mulatto, and black. With measures like dress codes and a ban on non-whites from holding public office, Brazilian society made skin color the key determinant of social mobility. Every bit of melanin made a difference. All else being equal, the whiter you were, the better your prospects. You might hope that the sizable non-white population, even among free citizens, would have led to a relatively early date for abolition, but the reverse was the case. The slaves were finally emancipated only in 1888, making Brazil the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery. Even this was achieved only after several more faltering steps in this direction. Importation of slaves ended in 1850, and in 1871, the so-called Law of the Free Womb declared that henceforth no one would be born into slavery. The idea was that slavery would be phased out slowly, giving the agricultural system that depended on it time to adapt. But as critics pointed out, it would mean delaying abolition by decades, in addition to which children born to slaves were still going to grow up within the same oppressive system, even if they were legally free. Thanks to this stuttering and contradictory approach to emancipation, in the middle of the 19th century, many were being held as slaves illegally, for instance because they had been smuggled into the country in violation of the ban on the slave trade. So one goal for activists was to use the legal system to free such people, 
and one of those activists was Luis Gama. His mother had been taken from what is now Ghana, but secured freedom before he was born in 1830. Apparently, his father was a white man, though Gama declined to say so explicitly, making the telling remark, In this country, such assertions regarding the delicate subject of human color are quite risky in the face of the truth. When he was 10, his father sold him into slavery to cover some gambling bets. He fled from this illegal captivity at the age of 18 and became a crusader in the courts for others, eventually winning freedom for more than 500 other people and for himself the honorary title Advocate of the Wretched. Gama's career echoes developments we've seen in the United States. He became master of a Masonic lodge and used it as an instrument to fight for abolition. He wrote for newspapers and gave prominent speeches, including an 1873 address to the First Republican Congress in Rio de Janeiro, in which he attacked the halfway house compromise that was the law of the free womb. But he is also remembered as a literary figure, especially for poems like Who Am I?, in which he satirically compared human skin tones to the color of goats, because goat was a term of abuse used for blacks. Yes, he said, there are white goats and black ones, and poor goats and rich ones too, just as he could claim common ancestry with the mixed-race aristocrats of Brazilian society. In another poem, he ironically showed off his flair as a writer, even while lamenting his exclusion from the world of letters. Sciences and letters are not for you, black from the coast. You are no one here. I don't want them to say that I was too bold and that I intruded upon science. Sorry, my dear friend, there is nothing I can give you in the land ruled by the white. We're deprived even of thinking. He also inspired others, for instance, the journalist and political cartoonist Raoul Pompeia, who met Gama in 1881 and idolized him, calling him friend to the whole world. With Pompeia, we come to a distinctive theme of the abolitionist movement in Brazil, namely a feeling of shame at the nation's failure to end slavery. Pompeia was himself the son of plantation owners. Nonetheless, he joined Gama and other abolitionist writers like André Pinto Rebusas and José Carlos do Patrocinio in their campaign against slavery, trying to mobilize popular opinion in Brazil to support total abolition. Yet, Pompeia was sensitive about appealing to popular opinion outside Brazil. He attacked those who aired the nation's dirty moral laundry in the international press. For him, national pride was a reason to end slavery, but it was also a reason not to admit to the world that the cruel slave system still defined Brazilian society. On this issue, he was in disagreement with the man who remains the most famous representative of Brazilian abolitionism, Joaquim Nabucco. Together with Rebusas, he founded the Brazilian Anti-Slavery Society in 1880. Three years later, he published his most important work called simply Abolitionism. More international in outlook than Pompeia, Nabucco was inspired by the example of the United States, which had managed to abolish slavery before Brazil did. In his book, he alludes to admired names like William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Frederick Douglass. Elsewhere, he even used Garrison as a pen name. He also speaks of the national disgrace of being condemned by the British and invokes the French Declaration of the Rights of Man. You can imagine him flushing with embarrassment as he recounts how Charles Darwin ended a visit to Brazil by remarking, I thank God I shall never again visit a slave country. Despite Nabucco's disagreement with Pompeia on this issue, 
the two certainly agreed that being a good Brazilian patriot was a sound basis for abolitionism. Indeed, as he freely admitted, he spoke not from the point of view of the slave, but the standpoint of the patriot. Mabuku was himself a member of the white elite, whose father had also been an important national politician. He was thus motivated more by a feeling of national honor than by any sense of identification with slaves, or with the free citizens, classified as colored. Indeed, he took racial inequality to be more or less a given fact, something that comes out in a few passages of his abolitionism, as when he complains that instead of elevating the Africans who have come to Brazil, the country has seen the bastardization of the more advanced race by the more backward. At one point, he says that he wishes to see the liberation of both slaves and masters from this wicked practice, and some modern-day readers think that it was the liberation of the masters that concerned him most. Still, his abolitionism does express concern over the plight of those currently enslaved and emphasizes the need to work towards their economic uplift after emancipation, which will be only the first step in true abolition. He saw the integration of former slaves into a thriving democratic Brazil as a long-term project. In the shorter term, he supported the Brazilian monarchy, not least because the royal family might be enlisted as allies in the struggle against slavery, but also because he had a low opinion of the Brazilian people, who seemed to him insufficiently educated and civilized to govern themselves. Despite his elitist and at times racist outlook, Nabucco can also take credit for refusing to minimize the tyranny of slaveholding in Brazil. With all those sugar plantations, the slaveholders were well-placed to sugarcoat what they were doing, and they liked to tell themselves that masters in Brazil were gentler than those in, say, the United States. Brazil was less racist, less violent, and offered greater opportunity for slaves to win freedom and integrate into wider society. This reassuring story didn't fit very well with the long history of slave uprisings in Brazil, some of which led to the establishment of quilombos, communities of former slaves who had escaped to freedom. Luis Gama told of how, when his father sold him, it was difficult to find a buyer because he was from Bahia, where several rebellions had occurred. Nonetheless, still in the 20th century, the narrative of mild slave masters was put forward by some. A prominent case was Gilberto Freire. His influential 1933 book, The Masters and the Slaves, argued for the relative benevolence of slavery in Brazil, which he depicted as a socially mobile, multi-ethnic, and multi-racial society. Freire gave credit to the cultural values of the Portuguese and their approach to colonization, which was free of the race hatred that characterized slavery in the United States. This made possible a more integrated society after abolition, which Freire optimistically called one of the most harmonious unions of culture with nature and of one culture with another that the lands of this hemisphere have ever known. Freire's positive portrait of Brazilian culture remains appealing, insofar as he identified its diverse population as a strength. We're a long way here from Gobineau's laments about polluted blood. But the notion of more or less gentle or harmonious slaveholding, which of course echoes elements of American nostalgia for the antebellum South, had already been refuted quite effectively decades before by Nabucco. In principle, all slavery is the same, he said, because it is an attack on all humanity and a violation of the natural law. If a master can get away with treating his victims gently, Nabucco observed, this is simply because those victims have had their spirits crushed to the point of resignation. 
As he nicely put it, the limit of the master's cruelty is to be found in the meekness of the slave. When meekness ceases, cruelty begins. He also argued persuasively that slavery was a corrupting force for Brazilian society as a whole. He would have agreed with Freire that 19th century Brazilian discrimination was less broad than could be found in the United States at the same time, especially as concerning free blacks. But slavery still divided the nation along race lines. Again, his paramount concern was what this did to the Brazilian national character. With slavery, there is no national patriotism, he said, only the patriotism of caste or of race. A far more subtle portrait of the corruption caused by slavery can be found in the writings of the most famous Brazilian author of this period, Machado de Assis. He is not known as a political campaigner or activist, but as a novelist and poet. Indeed, in the judgment of literary critic Harold Bloom, the greatest black writer in the history of universal literature. He was mixed race, on which point there's a story that nicely illustrates the aforementioned Brazilian sensitivity to terms denoting skin color. When an admirer of Machado referred to him as a mulatto after he died, none other than Nabucco protested that this was a derogatory designation. What about Machado himself? Would he have appreciated being identified as mulatto? Well, while there is no doubting Machado's importance in the history of Brazilian literature, people have doubted whether he identified at all with people of color or was interested in their legal and social condition. Still, two lines of defense have been offered. One is straightforward. He did in fact write in favor of abolition, albeit sometimes under pseudonyms. Furthermore, there are passages in his fiction and poetry that engage directly with slavery and race. In a story from 1872, a house slave is taken aback by a visitor's refusal to accept not being allowed to see his master. Machado writes, The young man's resolute tone shocked the slave, whose spirit, accustomed to obedience, almost didn't know how to distinguish it from duty. The psychological point here couldn't have come from someone who gave no thought to the nature of slavery. It plays a more central role in a poem called Sabina from 1875, which tells the story of a slave who is seduced and then abandoned by her master's son, leaving her with an illegitimate child. And, writing a novel in 1908, Machado has a character reflect back on abolition in the following terms. I still recall what I read in the foreign press about us on the occasion of Lincoln's famous proclamation. More than one newspaper made a nominal allusion to Brazil, saying there remained only one Christian population to imitate them and end slavery. I hope that today they praise us, even though late it is liberty. If you detect a note of irony mixed in there, along with a patriotic sentiment that would be at home in Nabucco or Pompeia, then you've got a good ear. Which brings us to the second and more interesting line of defense, or perhaps we should say, of interpretation. This has been put forward especially by the literature scholar Roberto Schwartz in a magisterial analysis of Machado's great novel, The Posthumous Memoirs of Bras Cubas. This novel is not about slavery, at least not at the level of plot. Instead, it tells the story of an intellectual and politician, the Bras Cubas of the title, his love affairs, family relations, and so on. But at a deeper level, at least on Schwartz's reading, the novel is a reaction to slavery and the other exploitative class dynamics that corrupt Brazilian society. We find this pretty convincing. For one thing, even a cursory skimming of this novel will tell you that whatever it is about, it is not about the plot. 
It is full of literary gamesmanship and amusing layered ironies. One chapter is made up entirely of a redacted conversation. Another tells us that it should be inserted into the previous chapter. Another remarks on its own pointlessness. Yet another begins, Now, watch the skill, the art with which I make the greatest transition in this book. Watch! Naturally, the book concludes with a list of things that did not happen to the narrator. As for how it starts, the narrator decides to begin his story with his own death, rather than his birth. I was accompanied to the cemetery by eleven friends. Eleven friends! The fact is, there hadn't been any cards or announcements. On top of that, it was raining. Along with the joke, there's an allusion here to Lawrence Stern's novel, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, which, by contrast, does begin with having the title character relate the story of his own conception and birth. Stern, who unexpectedly has now managed to appear twice in a series on Africana philosophy, because we mentioned him in the episode on Ignatius Sancho, is famous for his digressive, meandering style. That style is echoed by Bras Cubas, who at one point compares his own story to the staggerings of a drunk. This is all quite entertaining, but also has the effect of underscoring the narrator's fundamental unseriousness, which is where Schwarz's interpretation gets its purchase. For him, Machado is trying to unmask the hollowness and triviality of the values held by the Brazilian elite, as represented by the main character and narrator, Bras Cubas. At several points, Cubas and other characters put forth grand philosophies of life that present superficiality as the deepest of insights and narcissism as the highest ethical principle. One chapter is dedicated to the philosophy of the nose, inspired by a practice of Indian ascetics, where one focuses on the tip of one's own nose to the exclusion of all other things. Bras Cubas explains, such contemplation whose effect is subordination to just one nose constitutes the equilibrium of societies. So this philosophy is an explicit justification of self-obsession, which we're told is needed to balance out love for other people. In another chapter, we meet an exponent of humanitism, a philosophy that revolves around concern with one's own worldly existence and pleasures. This philosopher illustrates humanitism by saying that he has just had chicken for lunch, which was fed on grain planted by slaves who were abducted from Africa, from which he draws the following lesson. This chicken, which I've just had for lunch, is the result of a multitude of exertions and struggles carried out with a single aim of satisfying my appetite. Such monstrous self-regard makes it impossible to give things their correct moral weight. This is echoed more concretely in the person of the narrator's brother-in-law. He's a slave trader who has committed terrible violence against his victims. The narrator blandly remarks, Having been long involved in the smuggling of slaves, he'd become accustomed to a certain way of dealing that was a bit harsher than the business required, and one cannot honestly attribute to the original nature of a man what is simply the effect of his social relations. Admittedly, his brother-in-law isn't perfect as the narrator, he does have an annoying tendency to boast about his charity work. Long before Hannah Arendt, Machado was already depicting the banality of evil in a fictional setting. He also explores the way violence begets violence. While reminiscing about his childhood, the narrator tells us of how, as a boy, he would make a young slave named Prudencio pretend to be his horse and whip him as part of the game. When Prudencio dared to complain, the narrator would shout at him, Shut your mouth, beast! 
Later in the novel, the now adult narrator comes upon a black man beating his own slave and saying exactly the same thing. The one wielding the whip is none other than Prudencio, who has gained his freedom and is now using it to, as Machado writes, rid himself of the beatings he'd received by transmitting them to someone else. For Schwartz, Machado's satire responds to the hypocrisy and shameful exploitation of Brazilian society, no less than the more direct political response of Nabucco. As Schwartz puts it, from the practical perspective, slavery was a contemporary necessity, from the emotional perspective, a traditional presence, and from the ideological perspective, an archaic disgrace. The appearance of philosophy itself as a mere affectation, and the narrator's failure to respond adequately to the sufferings of others, help to create what Schwartz calls an intimate combination of social satisfaction and moral dead end, which is for him definitive of Machado's writing. It all results from the psychological conflict felt by the Brazilian ruling class. On the one hand, this elite knew and admired the liberal values of the European Enlightenment. On the other hand, their dominant position was secured through illiberal tyranny and oppression. Compared to the strident rhetoric of an author like Nabucco, writing such a subtle and ironic novel may seem an insufficiently outraged reaction to the horror of slavery, but if you want to learn about the insidious psychology and moral evasion of a slave-owning elite, you can do no better than to read Machado de Assis. Naturally enough, we've focused here on the way that Machado reacted to racial injustice, but he is also attentive in his writings to gender injustice. His superficially romantic plots often highlight the dependency and vulnerability of women in his society. Again, other writers of the time were addressing this issue more directly. One of them was already active at the same time as Machado and Nabucco, though she did not die until 1964, having reached the whopping age of 105 years. You'll have to wait only a fraction as long to hear all about Anna Julia Cooper, who will be featured in the next episode of The History of African Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all